They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. In Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Hey, what's up with your boy, Elliot Mogolines, uh, coming at you live from uh, Indianola, Iowa. I've got with me here Nathan Mogolines, my brother, coming at us live from Ames or someplace that I can't remember. Uh, Ames, Elliot, good grief. <laughs> okay, whatever, shut up. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's dive right in with the banter. Nathan, your nose is looking particularly enormous today. Take that. (laughs) That's just hurtful. You know, (laughs) banter is supposed to be fun and light and playful, not a middle school bully, you know? So try again, try a different banter opener. Okay. I didn't realize you were so sensitive about the size of your nose. All right. Uh, you have, (laughs) you have belittled the size of my nose since I was a child. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's accurate. Um, no. All right. Uh, Nathan, you son of a biscuit. How the heck are you? I, I don't know. I'm really <laughs> struggling. That's pretty good. All right. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing peachy keen. Love Thursday. Fall weather. I'm a huge fan. I'm wearing my favorite sweatshirt. We out here, bro. Yeah, I'm. I'm very glad that it's getting colder because that means that I get to wear my trench coat. I've got a big black trench coat that I'm. I'm well known for. You know, I'm a real man about town when they see me coming. What? Get what? Is, what is wear it? the trench coat. You wear that thing in like eighty degree weather. You've been you stop wearing it for maybe a week in the middle of the summer, and that's it. <laughs> that is a lie. I wear it probably for longer than is appropriate, but I only you know I would say that eighty degrees is probably probably a hard cap for me, unless unless I'm like really just. Just really need the intimidation factor that it that it gives me. Oh sure, sure, sure. So like when I'm going to rough up people for for the loan shark business that Nathan runs uh, out of his apartment, I always wear the trench coat. I do not. If anyone from the FBI is listening, uh, there is no loan shark shark operation being run anywhere in the vicinity of my apartment. All right. How was that for banter? Can we move on? That was, yep. We can move on, Elliot. Oh, before we move on, it's been way too long since we've thanked Jake for the introduction. Thank you, Jake, for the, the introduction. Yes. And I also want to thank Ben Neeson for making our new logo. Uh, I meant to thank him when he actually made it like <laughs> two months ago or whatever, but I keep forgetting. But Thank Ben Neeson. He did a great job. It's a solid logo. And yeah, Jake, phenomenal job on the intro as always. That's the gratitude out of the way. 
Yep. Now, now to the film. Now to movies. What really matters in life, you know? I agree. Uh, we're doing Grand Budapest. I got to pick. I love this movie. I picked Grand Budapest Hotel. It's not the most recent film. The third most recent, I guess, maybe. From Wes Anderson, fairly iconic director with a very distinctive style that I'm sure we'll talk about as we talk about the movie more. But it's from 2014. It was nominated for a whole bunch of Academy Awards, of which it won four. Best Costume Design, Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Musical Score, and Best Production Design. It was also nominated for Best Director, Cinematography, Editing, Original screenplay and best picture, which it lost tragically. But uh, yeah, it's a movie about uh, a hotel, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And Elliot, this is your second time watching it. This is my second time watching it, I think, unless you rewatched it in the last year between when we saw it for the first time. Um, what did you think? What are your What are your thoughts on second viewing? Hmm. 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 So I, I think that the visual language of Wes Anderson movies is almost always the first thing that you notice about them. Even if you're a Wes Anderson fan, of which there are quite a few, it's always the biggest talking point. And I guess that's as good a place to start as any, how we both feel about that certain style. I don't dislike it. I think it's very unique. It definitely sets him apart from the crowd. I guess if I were to level any criticism at it, it's that so the symmetry is obviously a big thing. Like it, there's all everything is always very neat and ordered in the shots, but also it's just that symmetry or at least the ethos that drives that symmetry extends to just the cinematography in general, by which I mean it's all very deliberate, very, very deliberate, like the blocking, the camera movements. It's so clearly choreographed and mechanical, and I don't necessarily mean that I don't necessarily use the word mechanical pejoratively because a lot of the times it's a lot of fun to see how it how it all fits together and how, you know, how well-timed everything is. But sometimes it does really... It does get distracting. Like, it really calls your attention to the fact that you are watching a movie that has been ordered in a very specific way almost like it's trying to never let you forget that you're watching a movie you know like the way the camera sometimes the way a camera will follow people uh either when it's panning across the scene or just when it's static and it's sort of looking around it's it feels organic it feels like you're looking from a person's point of view that's sort of watching something unfold. That's never the case with Wes Anderson movies. It's always so meticulous that it can never be mistaken for anything other than 
the movement of a camera, which is why I call it mechanical. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think in this movie it works a lot more often than it doesn't. But uh, yeah, what do you, what do you think about Wes Anderson's style, his filming style? Well, I'm a pretty big fan of it. I think it took a while. So I've seen every single one of his movies except for his very first one. I think, Elliot, you've just seen this one and then his two animated pictures, right? Um, Yeah, The Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs. Yeah, so I've seen all of them. And my biggest issue, honestly, with the early ones is how much the style is inconsistent throughout the film that there's sequences that have that symmetry that I think it's almost like a diorama or diorama or like a dollhouse that it's it looks like everything was put there like you said yeah very meticulously everything is there for a very particular reason but his early movies have scenes like that and then also some moments where it seems like that's not it's not as carefully constructed so my biggest issue with Wes Anderson's style is when he doesn't go for it as much as I wish he would when he's kind of pulling back and when he's kind of letting some scenes play out in not as distinctive a way and I say all that to say that Grand Budapest is my favorite Wes Anderson film because I don't think there's a single moment in this movie where he ever stops doing his style. And I think if you're going to have an issue with this movie, it's definitely going to be like you kind of said, saying "Eh, the style is kind of mechanical. It feels very unemotional, but I don't have that issue. I just, I, if you've ever seen one of those videos that's like a compilation of oddly satisfying moments, you know, like a ball going through a hole that's just big enough for it to go through. That's how I feel watching this movie is that scene after scene after scene of watching just immaculately constructed sets and set pieces come together that it is just so, I get a buzz of serotonin. The one that jumps to mind is when they're at the funeral and Adrian Brody, uh, Dimitri runs over to Gustav and then they all right punch each other. And like, they all get knocked out from the one punch and just the way they punch is so snappy and great. I just love watching it. And so many moments in the movie are like that, that it's just so well done. And I, it's like doing heroin, you know, that I do all the time. It's is what it's like watching this movie. That's interesting. I mean, you there's other elements. Faces as I... Yeah. So do you do you disagree then? No, I was making faces because you were talking about drugs and stuff, and it was a bit strange. Uh, I don't disagree. I think that, like I said, I think it works really well for this movie. Probably the elements of Wes Anderson's style that I think are less effective in this movie or more distracting are his use of miniatures, which can just sort of come out of nowhere. Um, and how shall I... The, Sometimes the quirkiness and the quaintness of this movie and all of Wes Anderson's movies can boil over into the realm of being twee. 
You know, it's just it's just excessively quirky. It's and it feels affected. You know, it feels like over the top. Like it, there's it's sort of like what we were talking about last week with the movie that must not be named of David Fincher's, where it feels like Fincher is throwing together all these Fincherisms just into a soup without any real kind of overarching point behind it. And that I think that an argument could be made about this movie that sometimes Wes Anderson is just throwing together Andersonisms. Like, uh, like in that scene when everyone's getting punched, uh, Willem Dafoe gets the last punch in, and then he turns back to the camera and does that weird thing where the, like, where it puts a spotlight on him. And it, yeah. it doesn't make much sense, and it's distracting, and it takes me out of the movie. You know, maybe, maybe you're into that kind of thing. But, yeah, those are the kinds of moments where I think that Wes Anderson's Andersonisms sort of get away from him and border on being indulgent. Mm. That's it. I don't feel like that at all. I uh, I feel that towards some of his early movies, especially the Royal Tenenbaums, I feel like is just so filled with so many quirky characters seemingly for the sake of being quirky and depressed, which is another weird thing that he's got a real thing about. But I don't really feel that way about this movie. I feel like all of the characters are just quirky enough that it's kind of fun to see what they do and fun to see how they react to things, but it never feels so divorced from actual characters that I don't connect with the characters that I think what he tells here is fundamentally a very emotional story about lonely people holding on to the things that made them happy in the past and what that kind of, looks like and what that kind of plays out as and yeah even that moment that you talk about that he turns back and it's very blatantly a movie there's a spotlight on him even that i'm like okay that's cool i like the costuming for william defoe i think it's neat and i don't think it's as i i guess i don't think it's as indulgent but i think that's also down to personal personal taste you know there's nothing to be said for that (laughs) Yeah, I guess you've sort of brought up the narrative aspects, which we could probably move away from, move, not move away from, move towards now. We can move away from the technical elements. The The last thing I'll say on the technical side, at least for now, is that to me, this movie feels a bit like reading one of those books, and maybe you're familiar with this, Nathan, slash the audience, maybe you're not, but where the writer will sort of, out of nowhere, pull out this really elaborate, flowery sentence, and it's like a stylistic sort of flair, and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Because it doesn't really fit with the rest of his pro, his or her pro style. Uh, that's, that's how I would, that's what I would liken this movie to. It's not like if you ever read any book by, like, a literary analysis written by an actual professional uh, academic scholar of literature. I mean, this is probably a really niche metaphor to make. And I imagine I'm the only, I'm the only person who actually knows what I'm talking about, but it's, 
ridiculous because the sentences go on for so long, uh, much like this metaphor that that I'm making, <laughs> and it sort of loses uh, it sort of loses the point, and you just wish it would stop. So uh, let's stop this and go on to the narrative elements. What do you think about this movie's story, characters, themes, that kind of thing? Well, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I'm a huge fan of it. I think this is Wes Anderson fully coming to grips with the type of story he wants to tell. And I think especially if you watch The French Dispatch, which is his most recent film, which is also a movie that I am very, very fond of, I think you can see him really nailing down what he wants to write about, the type of people he wants to write about, and figuring out how to get to the emotional core of these things. I love the setup for this movie, that it's a person reading a book written by a person who met this person who told them this story. That it's a very, I wrote in my notes that it's almost a story about stories. That it's just a tale that's told and there's maybe not necessarily a deeper meaning in every moment of this story because it's just a story. What you only say about uh, The Big Lebowski is that you really like it because it's just a story being told like at a bar. It's just some dude telling a story that that's what I kind of feel about this movie, that it's just a story being told that we open with the girl reading the book in the cemetery at the author's grave. And then we jump through all these different layers until we get finally to the story about Zero and Gustav. And that's when I think it becomes very much a story about people who are trying to hold on to something that is innately being pulled away from them as time moves forward and the world moves forward. That Gustav is trying to hold on to some semblance of culture or this high society that he thinks about, but the way the world is moving is it's moving away from that. And that Zero is just by the nature of being an immigrant, he's literally in a place different from where he was born, from where he was raised. And so he's trying to be happy in this new place. And I'm a huge fan of it. The one line that really stuck out to me in kind of this idea of it's just a story is when the author is telling Jude Law, or Zero is telling Jude Law about the women that Gustav would have at the hotel and the author goes, why were they blonde? And Zero just shrugs and he's like, because they were. That, you know, it's just a meaningless detail, but it's a detail that, I don't know, means something because it's there. It's kind of paradoxical, but it's it's just a story, so there's no deeper meaning, but it, it feels like there's a deeper meaning, I guess. I don't know. That probably all sounded incredibly pretentious. <laughs> I don't know if it sounded pretentious as much as, like, completely nonsensical, but, you know, that's okay. Whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> well, once again, that's that's how I feel when I don't like The Big Lebowski at all. So when you talk about The Big Lebowski, that's how I feel, is I'm like, he's just pulling stuff out of thin air now. <laughs> I don't make any sort of thematic claim about Big Lebowski. I The similarity literally stop, begins, and ends with, I just think that it's a fun sort of story that somebody might tell when they're sitting at a bar or around a campfire with some friends. But we're not going to talk about that. We're talking about Grand Budapest Hotel. So, anyway. Um, 
when I was shut up <laughs> when I was looking at sort of looking into this movie to get uh, a sense of reactions, uh, its awards, its presence in the cultural zeitgeist or what have you. I was really surprised by the depth and extent of analysis that this movie, thematic analysis that this movie has had. A lot of stuff from uh, one of the big ones is what you've already been talking about, about nostalgia and trying to recreate a world that is going or gone. The other big one is about fascism. And there is a strong World War II subplot in this movie, particularly regarding the mobilization of this fictitious European country's army. It's unclear what side they're on. I don't I don't really understand where the fascism part comes in, because there's a lot of stuff that was written about it, and I read some of it. And a lot of it, to be completely honest, seemed like just people talking about their opinions on fascism and its nature, and less about how that's revealed in the movie. But, you know, I'm I'm perfectly willing to accept that I'm just stupid and I'm not seeing it. The reason I don't see it is because it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, they get stopped by the soldiers in the in the field of barley, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. Uh, and Zero gets accosted, but that's one of two times where that happens. The rest of their encounters with this country's military apparatus are all fairly inconsequential. And they have the one, the last one, where they're on the train again, and they come in again, but they're wearing new uniforms, and Gustav refers to them. He says, this is the first time I've met, I think, this is the first time I've met one of you boys from the Death Squads, which seems to imply that they're a new thing, which makes me wonder if maybe this is like a Nazi occupying force, but it's unclear. I don't really... It's unclear what the status of this country is, which side they're fighting on. Um, the writer, whose name I've quite forgotten, near the end says that the hotel was supposed to become, like most of the property in that country, common property, which seems to imply that this country has become a Soviet satellite state in the Eastern Bloc after the war. But again, it's not clear, so I'm not sure... What I'm not sure what the point of it is. I definitely understand how Zero is a non-white immigrant, which is the the catalyst for his being accosted both times it happens. But I think that if that was going to be more fleshed out, that would need to be well, that would need to be more fleshed out. That would need to be a more central focus of the narrative. But uh, did you, did you get? Anything from the military or the fascism slash World War II aspect of it? Honestly, no. Besides what I kind of talked about, that just the nature of the world 
and the nature of Europe slowly leaving behind these things that Gustav values, uh, I don't really see any point to the fascist beside just that's the period of time that the story is taking place. And like you said, they only show up the two times. I think it's fairly heavily implied maybe that the second time they show up, they kill Gustav or they end up. Well, it's not implied that it zero just says that he gets shot there. Oh yeah. Well then he gets killed there, but it's, I think of it again, like the line, why blonde? Because they were that it's just another element of the story. And I don't think it's necessarily as fleshed out or as in your face. I think certainly if you see things, if you see aspects of that thematically through the film, then that's, you see that it's art. You can see whatever you want. I don't see that. That's not where I really find myself resonating with the film. So I would ask the other element that I kind of talked about, about nostalgia and all that, where where do you stand on that? What do you think about that in terms of the narrative? Okay, so now we're actually going to talk, now we're actually going to talk about stuff that I like about this movie, because I promise I did actually enjoy this movie. <laughs> and I think that that's a lot more prevalent and is a big part of one of my favorite things about the movie is how it's... It, it does a really good job of balancing tones because there are moments in this movie, mostly in the um, not modern day, not modern moments, but the like the moments when the writer is hearing the story from zero that are quite somber. And I think they're they do a really good job of utilizing framing and just subtle moments to create a very tangible atmosphere of quiet loneliness and sort of the sense of something once beloved now slipping away. Uh, so I'm thinking mostly of the scene in the diner when uh, the establishing shot is the two of them in this, not diner, dining room in the, the establishing shot is the two of them in this big dining room and all the other their tables are set up but there's nobody else there i think that's that's really good but the rest of the movie is very energetic and cheerful and upbeat but it doesn't feel disparate you know it doesn't feel like a jarring tone shift sort of like this is a bit of a weird comparison but in Shaun of the dead I think that the tone shifts in that movie are a lot more jarring and a lot more to the movie's detriment, which I understand is not a very popular opinion. Whatever. I have a lot of those things. But in this movie, I think it works really well. I don't, to be honest, have a lot of thematic analysis in this movie. I think that most of the emotional heft comes from the characters, who I really like, uh, especially the friendship between Zero and Gustav, which is legitimately legitimately affecting and sweet. Like, when he's, when they break out of prison and he's berating Zero for being an idiot and Zero sort of gives him his story and Gustav feels legitimately remorseful for this and tries to make amends, I mean, that's that's really good. And I, I really like their relationship. It, it, it definitely helps that you've got 
flipping Ralph Fiennes as one of the characters, and Ralph Fiennes is he's you know he's a legendary actor for a reason. He's he's fantastic, and so is the guy who plays Zero. Who uh, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Nathan's looking it up. I can tell. Oh, somebody play up. the Jeopardy music. Tony Revol Revolori. Tony Revolori. Good job, Tony Revolori as well. He also plays, I think, Flash in the new Spider-Man movies. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to talk about those. <laughs> um, since you mentioned the actors, there's a lot of stuff. I would agree, firstly, wholeheartedly. I love the characters. Gustav and Zero is a friendship for the ages. It's adorable, them doing all their stuff together. Um, Wes Anderson, very much known for large cast, very much known for the same people who do show up in this film as well. But this is one of the interesting movies in that it puts, right, Ralph Fiennes is one of the main characters, and then Tony, this is his first movie, if the credits are to be believed, since it says introducing. So I just wanted to ask Elliot as the actor person, which of the actors in this very large cast, who do you think does the best? I mean, obviously, Ralph Fiennes does amazing, and Tony as well does a very good job. But who are your favorites amongst the supporting cast? Uh, yeah. So Saoirse Ronan uh, is one of my favorite actresses, and she's she has a small role, but she's really good in it, as usual. Uh, I do like Willem Dafoe. I think his character is pretty funny and is a decent antagonist. Side note, I like how Lucas Hedges, the, the sad Oscar boy, shows up for five seconds in this movie. Uh, if you don't know who that is, it, he's the sad Oscar boy. He, he's always playing. He's always playing in movies that are nominated for Oscars, and he is always sad <laughs> without fail. <laughs> Um, so yeah, honestly, the cast is really big, but there's not a lot of big roles, you know, aside from the main mm -hmm. characters, there are, the side characters are pretty much to the side. Um, Edward Norton is a good actor, although he, I don't really understand his character. Uh, Adrian Brody is... Not as good of an antagonist as Willem Dafoe, because he really disappears for a while, and he doesn't do a whole lot. Um, Jeff Goldblum is pretty good. Uh, I'm sad. I his <laughs> When Willem Dafoe throws his cat out the window, that's, that's a pretty good yeah. moment. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, all of the actors do really good. I don't think I have a whole lot to say about them, because yeah, they're the side characters are very much on the side. So it the main focus is Ralph Fiennes and uh, Tony, both of whom do great job. And I, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that they're perfectly uh, capable of carrying the movie by themselves. Yeah. So I agree with all that nonsense that you just said. I'd also like to say <laughs> how... A lot of Wes Anderson's movies are comedies or have a lot of comedic elements, and I consider this probably his funniest movie. Fantastic Mr. Fox is also fairly funny, but I just find a lot of the 
bits that they do are very, very funny. The hotel Illuminati thing, when they keep calling different hotel managers and then they keep telling their lobby boy, take over for me in increasingly specific and silly scenarios that the guy's giving CPR and then he's like, take over. And the kid starts doing CPR. He's berating the cooks for the meal. I find that really funny. And then I also find the scene where they're in the confession booth talking to Serge and <laughs> I find every moment, like every line of that scene is so funny to me that he gets in and he's like, they killed your sister. And he's like, oh, those, and he, you know, he's cursing and he's really pissed about it. And um, I find those very funny. Do you find the movie funny? Because you don't find, I think, anything funny ever. Um, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, I find the movie pretty funny. I can't really think of any, I mean, I j didn't I say I found the moment where Willem Dafoe throws the cat out the window funny? What, what's wrong with you? Yes. Why do you say these things? Uh, yeah, I think this movie is pretty funny. It's not the main draw for me, at least the comedy of the movie. I think a lot of it just comes from Ralph Fiennes delivery of these really absurd uh, lines. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty funny. Sort of to um, to go off of Ralph Fiennes delivering lines, I don't know what the point of this movie being R-rated is, because I counted four F-bombs, which is not a whole lot, but is enough to get you an R-rating, uh, you know, it, it was so tame, in fact, that I actually had to, uh, I had to actually look it up to make sure that it was rated R, because it's so tame, that, yeah, there's just the four F-bombs, I think there's maybe a single shot of nudity, yeah, it does not make a whole lot of sense to me, two shots, Nathan is saying, well, he's not saying he's holding up two fingers, or possibly doing the offensive British gesture uh, from Winston Churchill. Yeah, I do you, are all of his movies... Isle of Dogs wasn't R-rated, was it? Neither was Fantastic Mr. Fox. No, and then I think... I really want to say Moonrise Kingdom is PG-13. And... Maybe... I don't know. All of his movies are kind of on... I think the cusp and usually it is. Yeah. Like just a very few things. French dispatch had a lot of nudity though. So that was a bit more of a hard R. I really, honestly, I don't think he really thinks about it. I feel like he just kind of writes whatever he writes and then whatever rating he gets, he's just fine with, but it's, it is kind of weird because you would think the audience for a Wes Anderson movie would be children since like, I kind of said earlier, a lot of his sensibilities in terms of style are very uh, picture book-esque almost. And yet he writes stories that are fairly adult that, I mean, Royal Tenenbaums has extremely dark moments and uh, this movie as well has a fair amount of violence and cursing, not a fair amount, but a decent amount of violence and cursing. 
So it is kind of interesting. I think he's almost in the same boat, though, as like Edgar Wright, that, you know, he makes movies that stylistically you think would appeal to younger people, but he writes then stories that are more adult in a lot of ways that I think the perfect audience for baby driver is probably a 14 year old boy. And that movie is rated R. So <laughs> I think maybe just an issue with the, the rating more than anything else, but hmm. um, I guess I'd like to do just some, some brief, brief points here before we get into maybe ratings. Uh, first of all, I really like the score for this. Uh, Alejandra Desplat, Display, however you pronounce French names. He won the Oscar for this. He beat Hans Zimmer, whose score for Interstellar was nominated, which I think maybe a lot of people would take offense with. But uh, I thought this score was really good. It does a great job of maintaining the momentum of the scenes along with the camera work and just that general actual momentum of the scenes. But the score is very exciting, very you know, pushes also when they're in the cable cars going up to the top of the mountain and it stops and the cable car like shakes a bit and there's a squeaking noise. I don't know if it's just part of the score or if they did it on purpose, but the squeaking like harmonizes with like, it is part of the music, which is just such an insane detail to me that is so unnecessary, but just adds to the enjoyment of watching the movie of being like, that's such a pointless extra thing. So, yeah, I love the score. Obviously, on a technical level, I think the movie is incredible. As well as the last, like, 10 minutes of the movie, as it's kind of going back through each level of the uh, original narrative device that set up the film, is so... And I know you don't like this movie, but I get the same feeling as I do at the end of In the Mood for Love, that it's just 10 minutes of characters going through all of the things they lost and know they can never regain. It just, it really bums me out. I watched this late last night. I went to bed kind of sad just because the end of the movie really left me with a feeling that I was like, I've never been to Europe. I've never experienced all these things, but for some reason I feel very depressed now. I feel very much like I lost something. And so I think any movie that can, evoke that kind of emotion in a person I think is very impressive. So it's just another reason why I like the movie quite a bit. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or do you want to belittle me for having emotions? I, I definitely think that having emotions is a bad idea. It can only, it can only lead to bad things. <clears throat> I'm like the, uh, <laughs> I'm like the, the uh, administration in, oh gosh, what's it called? Dang it, what is it called? The movie with it's got Christian Bale as the main character, and it's set in a in the future where like emotions are outlawed. Dang it, I cannot remember at all. Well now it's gonna annoy me that we don't know. Well, it's Sean Bean is in it. Uh it's got really weird action. It's kind of a bad movie, to be honest. I have no idea. We'll look it up afterwards. Okay, we'll yeah. And the audience, for those of you playing along at home, you can just Google it right now. Anyway, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I agree. I was actually going to bring up that very moment of the score. Uh, I really like that. And I think that the score is very oh. distinctive. 
for the third time in a row, I'm going to classify this score as being really good, but not one that I would necessarily want to just you know, have on in the car when I'm driving to school. Uh, but yeah, fantastic score. Not sure if I would choose it over Interstellar, but I would definitely understand why somebody would. Uh, just a few things. I definitely don't understand how Ralph Fiennes is exonerated at the end. I get that. I get that the will changes things, but he's still been accused of murder, and the key witness that could exonerate him is still dead. So I'm not sure why he's still a free man. I don't see how the will leaving him all this stuff in the event of a murder makes him in the eyes of the law not a murderer that does that makes absolutely no sense to me i honestly have to wonder if i missed it uh jude law is really good but him and tom wilkinson i don't understand why they spent all that money to get such recognizable actors for such small roles you know whatever but yeah, I think on the whole, this is a this is a good, fun movie. Yeah, I I, I guess I'll save the rest of my closing thoughts for for ratings. Sure, I guess uh, I think the reason he's exonerated is be is it is because it removes a motive for murder. But honestly, uh, not sure. It's a Wes Anderson movie, so it kind of it plays by its own rules. But I guess if we're going to get into ratings, uh, I don't know how much more I can say. I'm, I like Wes Anderson as a director. I think it took him a while to kind of get into his groove. But I think once he did, it is really good. I'm a big fan of his last couple movies that he's done. And I'm definitely going to be going to every one that he makes subsequently after this. But yeah, I really love this movie. On a technical level, I think it's fantastic. On a narrative level, I'm a huge fan of, like you said, he does a great job of balancing comedy with some of these deeper moments. And it tells a story that I very much uh, resonate with and very much uh, connect to in a lot of ways. So yeah, I guess if I had to levy some criticism, I think it kind of slows down a touch, just a skosh in the second act when Ralph Fiennes is in prison that it just takes a bit to catch back up to where it is in terms of him telling, in terms of Zero telling the story about Agatha. But it's such a tiny thing. And the movie as a whole, like I said, is like shooting up on heroin. <laughs> Do we need to have a conversation? No, no, I'm fine. I'm not addicted to heroin. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's like a 9.5 for me. 9.5, 9.6. It's up there. This is a really great movie. Wow. And I enjoyed it more this time than I think the first time. I really liked it the first time on rewatch. I still had a huge amount of fun. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, so the good of this movie, there's quite a lot. Um, I would say that I'm pretty much at the same place re-watching it as I was the first time I saw it. There's a lot that I really enjoy about this movie. Fantastic performances from everyone involved. I really like the friendship of the main characters. 
uh, great musical score. The visual style works more than it doesn't work. The problems are there are logical moments that I don't really understand. Some of the jokes, I think, go on for too long to be funny. So I actually thought that the, the Society of the Crossed Keys montage, I feel like that that reached a point where I was like, all right, can we please just move this along? Same thing with when Dero and Gustav are going up the mountain and he keeps on getting asked, are you uh, Monsieur Gustav of blah, 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 blah. I think that goes on too long. And uh, yeah, just moments of visual or narrative flourish that feel superfluous and indulgent that keep it from being as great in my eyes as it is in yours. But still a really good movie that I would definitely recommend you see if you haven't seen it yet. And I'm going to give it a B plus. Sorry. Should be higher. <laughs> you, you will be. You will be. Alright, well, on the on the note of recommending movies, like, let's recommend some movies, you know? This was one of the harder ones to find a recommendation for, since Wes Anderson does have such a distinct visual style. But my recommendation is actually going to be a movie that's currently in theaters, titled See How They Run, with, uh, it also features some of the people from this movie, Saoirse Ronan is in it, as well as Adrian Brody. And there might be another Wes Anderson person in there. I can't be bothered to look. But, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it very much borrows from Wes Anderson's visual style and his trademark sort of characters. It's a whodunit. If you really liked Knives Out, I think this is a very good, maybe more British version of Knives Out that is much more indebted to Agatha Christie than Knives Out was. But, yeah, it's a ton of fun. It's very funny. Saoirse Ronan is hilarious in it. Sam Rockwell's also in it, and he's great. And, yeah, if you're looking for a movie, you know, date night, normal night, evening, whenever you're trying to go to a movie, uh, you could do a lot worse right now, and you couldn't do a whole lot better. So my recommendation is see how they run. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I, I, I want to. It's on my it's on my list. <clears throat> it's very anyway. Okay, shut up. Be quiet now, Nathan. Uh anyway, I actually I did my the usual thing where I completely forgot that recommendations uh are a thing that we do. But I actually when I was reminded of it right before we started recording this, I found it pretty easy to come up with one. Uh so I'm going to recommend Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which is a movie directed by Edgar Wright. Uh, kind of hard to put it in a genre. It's like half romantic comedy, half action movie. It, it's hard to categorize it, uh, which is true of a lot of Edgar Wright movies, and it's a big part of why I chose it. Because I think, in my mind, I don't know if this is a something that a lot of people think, but in my mind, Edgar Wright and Wes Anderson are kind of cut from the same cloth. They both have very distinctive styles. Uh, they both have a strong, very devoted core fan base that uh, is can be relied on to show up anytime they put something out. 
this movie, if you don't know, it's it takes a lot of inspiration from video games and comic books. It's based on a comic book that Nathan has read, but I have not. Um, I don't want to give too much away about the plot, just that it revolves around a young man's efforts to win the heart of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's a fantastic actress and does really good in this movie. Yeah, it's like Grand Budapest Hotel. It's very visually distinctive. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's energetic, uh, almost chaotic at times. If I were to give a review of it, there would be things that I would criticize about it. But, you know, recommendations are about getting people excited for movies. So I'm not going to talk about that. But I think that, honestly, in general, if you like Wes Anderson movies, Edgar Wright is probably a good director to explore. And uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World in particular is probably a good bet for you if you're looking for something to watch. Yep, Edgar Wright's best movie, fun fact. Fun fun little fact there, not an opinion. But uh, yeah, I would echo that. That's a great movie. So now we've come to the uh, end of another episode. I was asked recently if we script the... Uh, bits where we're not reviewing movies we don't in case you couldn't tell this is all off the cuff you know you've heard of saturday night live bantering and then whatever this nonsense is at the end is mogolyines live <laughs> right elliot yeah sure all right well once again a super fun episode i'm sure this will do huge numbers because it's such a popular film and we're such a popular podcast we are very popular, you know. That shout-out that we got from Martin Scorsese after we did the Goodfellas one, that really boosted our numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to – it's just going to keep on going up after we uh, interview uh, Christopher Nolan next week. And then we have uh, <coughs> we have Daniel Day-Lewis uh, coming out of semi-retire – or not semi – coming out of retirement to talk about his career uh, the week after that. So – Look forward to that. Uh, even though that's all very exciting, I do still maintain that life is hard and full of disappointments. But you know, you can also you can also look forward to things like when we definitely do not talk to either of those men. Yeah, I'm sure our next guest is going to be just as exciting as having either one of those famously interview uh, averse <laughs> cultural figures, cultural icons. So that's uh, that's great. 